We all have different skills. I have a couple of friends who actually are professional golfers, had a lot of success on the uh, PGA Tour. They took me out one time, and I got to tell you, when you're not watching them on TV, when you're there in person, and they're exactly 100 yards away, and they can drop that ball feet from a cup, you're just saying, they're playing a game I'm just not familiar with. I have a friend who's an emergency room doctor who has held a living, beating heart in his hands. I, I can't even imagine the pressure of someone being able to do that and keep their wits about him. And, and I've had friends that are just knowledgeable. They could look up at a plane in the sky and say, that's a 747, or they could look at the grill of a car and say, that's a 72 Mustang, or that's a 68 Charger, and, and, and that's not me at all. My skills are... Uh, a little more humble and not always appreciated. Uh, I, I know grammar. I know where you put the apostrophes. I know where you put the commas. I know how to handle it. I'm, I'm an English major. And, and, and my kids don't really appreciate this as they're growing. In fact, it would embarrass them because as part of spreading my gift around, when I would go to stores in town when they were coming up, I would often carry a pen with me because we'd go into these mom-and-pop stores that would have these signs that would invariably have a spelling mistake or they'd put the apostrophe in the wrong place. And I never charged the owner for this, not, not once. This was just spreading the love. I'd just take out my pen and I'd correct the sign so they didn't need to be embarrassed. And my, my kids thought that was terrible. Uh, but, the, but those of you who aren't into grammar don't understand how painful for us it is to see things that are just so clearly incorrect. There's this huge billboard by where my kids went to school that I had to pass every day and said, come in and see our new Hondas, apostrophe S. And, I, and clearly they meant plural, not possessive. And I'm like, I, this is, why would I buy a car from somebody that doesn't know the difference between a plural and a possessive? I mean, what if they missed up the gas and the brake? It could have very serious consequences. So these things just matter to me. I know they don't to a lot of you. But there are certain things like, for instance, if, if I could be the grammar policeman of the world, there's a phrase I just love to throw out. And this proves the importance of grammar, how, how far-reaching it can be. Uh, I hear pastors say this. I hear radio talk show hosts say this. Athletes say it. You name it, the, the phrase that's become so popular is each and every. Each and every one of us. Each and every day. Each and every time. Can I just point out that's redundant? Right? Each means every. Every means each. You, you just need to pick one. And, and I'm not unreasonable. If you want to be an each person, God bless you. If you prefer to be an every person, I, I'm in your camp. I have no beef with you. So we, we don't need to use both. I mean, we're so worried about global warming, right? Well, think of all that CO2 that comes out of our mouth using three words instead of one. Grammar could save the planet if we would take it more seriously is what I'm trying to say. So maybe we ought to be better grammarians when, when we think about that. That's just kind of explain a date night I had with my wife when we were a much younger couple. We had kids at home. We didn't get away very often. We didn't really have the money or the time to do it. And so when you have a date night that's not very frequent, you, you want to make the most of it. You want the mood to be right. You want it to be an enjoy, enjoyable time when you can get together and enjoy each other's company. And we went down to Seattle. That's um, where we stayed our first night of marriage. We actually got a hotel room, the exact hotel room where we'd spent our first uh, night of marriage. And uh, my wife loves Seattle. It's a funky city. You've got to visit sometime if you haven't been there. And one of her favorite things to do is to walk from our hotel and go down to the Pikes Place Market. 
Um, if you're not familiar with that, have you ever seen movies that feature Seattle and they're throwing the salmon? That's Pike's Place Market. It's organic. You know, they, it's kind of the hippie-ish kind of stores where they sell things like that. It's where, glory hallelujah, the first Starbucks was born. You can visit the first Starbucks if you want to um, order a cup of coffee from there. And so we're walking down there, and on our way down there to crosswalk, I look right, we're paused because the light's red, and there's this huge monstrosity of a neon sign that proclaims the words, Live Nudes. Live Nudes. And I look at that, and Lisa sees it, and I say, that's so wrong. She goes, I know. But they're using an adjective like a noun. I go, and, and, and live as opposed to what? Dead? I mean, how do, how do you get so messed up in a two-word sign? How do you make three mistakes? I, I just, and, and my wife, who has a better grasp of priorities, said, Gary, I think there's something worse than poor grammar going on. And maybe so, but man, they really ought to think about that. Now, the fact that there is a business where the only advertisement is live nudes, not live nude women. I mean, just it just about has live nudes. That it was enough to establish their business and to keep their business going it tells us something about our culture, doesn't it? I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure you have places like that in Toronto. Am I? Am I wrong? And, and the fact that we would look at that, that's enough to draw people in tells us that maybe. Maybe we're a little messed up with how we view something like our bodies. C.S. Lewis has a famous passage in one of his books. He said, imagine you were traveling down a country road and you come up on this barn lit from within. And you can hear some screaming and yelling and clapping. The, the barn is lighted up. And, and, and so you park your car and you're a little bit nervous because it sounds pretty raucous inside. You don't want to go in through the main door. So you steal around to the side and you look between the slats of the barn walls and you see this huge table laid out. You've got a, a chef with a chef's hat and a chef's uniform in the back. And he's got all these dishes, all of them covered on the table. And these men are surrounding the table and they're yelling and screaming and clapping. And the chef goes over to one end and he lifts up a little bit of a, a platter, just lifts the lid up a little bit and shows these perfectly roasted potatoes. And the men clap louder and they yell and they scream. And then he covers them up again and then he smiles. And he goes to the middle of the table and lifts up the main platter and it shows this perfectly basted turkey. The juices are bubbling from within. It looks like a magazine spread. And now the men are yelling out and they're throwing money up onto the table. Show us more, show us more. We want to see it all. And Lou said, if you witnessed that, wouldn't that make you think, Something's gone really wrong with how these people look at food. I mean, food is such a good thing. It's such a kind gift from God. Not only does it nurture our bodies, it brings health. It it stays off hunger. It is a gift. But you look at it in that context. You see the way those people look at it, and it's got that ick factor. Food is good, but but man, that that seems sick. I mean, there's just something off with that. 
And of course, the analogy is, is, is very clear. That's what we've done with the bodies. God made beautiful human bodies. They, they, they can be stunning in their beauty, and yet we, they're the bodies that we use to, to hold others. They're the tongues we use to encourage others. Um, the bodies that married people use to enjoy each other and then to create babies and bodies that God used to give birth to babies and the bodies that He uses to work to provide for others. And I mean, they're wonderful things, and, and certainly they are beautiful things one British playwright wrote in a play I thought this was interesting he said the most beautiful thing he was talking to a woman the most beautiful thing a man will ever see is a woman's naked body and she paused and she said what's the most beautiful thing a woman will ever see and he said her firstborn child not I don't know if that's true I mean it's a poetic way of putting it what I said is when God created our bodies he did a really good job. They can be enthralling. And that's a, a good thing. But when we treat our bodies like those country people treated that table of food, it brings in an ick factor. A good gift perverted. Looked at in a way that makes it just feel uncomfortable. That's the culture you're raised up in. And it maybe has never been like it is now, to be honest, we're in a culture that's increasingly obsessed with our bodies, but it's often a, a vandalized or artificial form of our bodies. My daughter did a paper when she was in high school about supermodels, and she came across a story of one who started to get a little bit older. She started to reach her upper 20s, and, and so she had to have her uterus removed because there was a little bump when she was in the s- swimsuit pictures. And so you're here you have a woman who is willing to vandalize her body to maintain the illusion of what a woman's body is supposed to look like. And a lot of you women have grown up in a culture that has asked you to look like something that you weren't designed to look like. And, and, and yet they're paraded. I was in New York one time, and I'm generally not a fan of vandalism. This one time it may have been Holy Spirit-inspired. Uh, if you've been in New York City, they have these huge buses that, that, that are connected one bus to another. And so they have these billboard-sized signs on, on the side of them. And this one bus was featuring Kate Moss, famous for sort of her heroin-chic skinny modeling. And she was modeling uh, underwear, so that's basically all that she was wearing. So somebody went up and wrote over her six-foot-long ch- stomach uh, the words, Feed me, which... I thought it was pretty creative. I mean, I, I kind of thought she was probably a little bit hungry too, the way they were looking at that. Um, we know, and, and women know they've been facing that for so many years, but what researchers tell us now is that men are facing the same societal pressure that women have. There are a trio of researchers from Harvard and Brown universities that have coined the phrase the Adonis complex. The Adonis complex. And what they're saying is that psychologically, they're finding just as many men just as obsessed and just as insecure about the size and shape of their bodies as women used to be 20 or 30 years ago. Because now men, like women are supposed to look absurdly skinny, now men are supposed to look like Conan the Barbarian, uh, even if they're just your normal average guys. And, and think about it. If you look at men action heroes in the movies 25 years ago to what they have to look like today... I mean, there's not even a comparison. Compare G.I. Joe when I was a boy growing up. Have you seen a recent G.I. Joe? I mean, you know G.I. Joe? You have him up here? I mean, I I loved G.I. Joe growing up. He wasn't a doll. He was an action figurine, right? And 
And, and G.I. Joe and I fought a lot of battles together. We've defeated a lot of communists and Germans. I mean, we, we, did, we, we made the world a better place. But he was a normal guy. I remember him and his buddies. I mean, he looked like a normal guy. Today, a G.I. Joe looks like a genetic mutant taken out of a toxic waste dump. In fact, they've done the figures that uh, if G.I. Joe were real today, if he were six feet tall, he'd have a 55-inch chest and 27-inch biceps. Um, just like, you know, they said Barbie never existed, that if she's a real woman, she'd have to be nine feet tall, and then she'd still fall over because the proportions are just all wrong. Um, the same thing is true with, with G.I. Joe, that they're creating a guy that doesn't really exist. And even the people who are lauded as the most beautiful amongst us live with this insecurity. George Clooney was, a couple years back, was asked to put his hands and feet on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And he confessed to one interviewer that when he was a young, struggling actor trying to make it, he was going down the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he came across, um, whose square was it? Clark Gable's square. And he was, he kind of thought it was funny that Clark Gable had rather small feet. You know, he thought, here's this actor, larger than life, and, and he's got small feet, and I don't know why you would think that's funny, but it just seemed to him a little funny that Clark Gable had small feet. So when he was chosen, he never wanted some other actor 20 years from now to come up and, and think that he had small feet. So what he did is before he put his hands and feet on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, though he wears a size 11 pair of shoes, which is perfectly respectable for a guy his size and age, uh, he went out and just for that day bought a size 14 pair of shoes so that anybody else comes up on it, they would never think that it was possible that George Clooney would have um, a small pair of feet. That's the culture we live in today. That's the culture that you guys have grown up in and often adopt unthinkingly those attitudes. You don't choose them. They're just there and they surround you. And they're really two Christian approaches to a culture that looks at our world like this. The first approach is this. We can adopt this attitude... Where am I supposed to point? We can adopt this attitude uncritically. We just don't even criti- we don't critique it. We just sort of absorb it. We think we want to compete with the world and have that kind of body. Most women that I've talked to have confessed that there was a time in their life when their sense of self-worth was directly tied to their perceived attractiveness to the opposite sex. It wasn't about whether they were a person of character, whether they were a person of gifts, whether they were a person of intelligence. If they thought other guys thought they looked really good, they felt good about themselves. If not, they struggled with insecurity. That's just adopting the world's views uncritically, saying the world's values are the right values. Somehow I should feel shame or at least a, a lack of pride if I don't look like other people think I should look. And then there are guys who decide that they're going to outcompete. <laughs> The world in this, who might spend 10 minutes a day in scripture, but they'll spend two and a half hours in the gym every day. And that's what they're thinking about. They eat to prepare for their workouts. They eat for their workouts. They eat to recover from their workouts. They read the magazines about the right protein mix, the right exercises. That's what they focus on. And their bodies have really become an obsession. They don't really think about how they're building their soul, their mind, their heart, their mission. It's really about how can I get that physique that others are looking for. Uh, and when you think about what the world values, if you have a church service that says, we want to come in, we want to tell you the way to salvation. Uh, and just want you to think about that invitation. The church is telling the world, 
You can have the weight of your sins lifted from your shoulder. You can have your eternal destiny secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the guilt removed. You can have the presence of the Holy Spirit come in and empower you and counsel you and help you to become the person God created you to be. That's what we're offering you. And what does the church say? The world say, rather, I heard it before. It's available every Sunday. Just not sure I'm interested. But if the church would put out a billboard that said, you know what, we have a guy with a special gift. If he lays his hands on you and prays for you, immediately you get six-pack abs. The carpet would wear out in that church. I'm seriously, there isn't a convention center in Canada that you could hold the people who would come in to get that instantaneous gift because really many in this culture value the shape of their bodies more than they value the shape of their or health of their souls. That's a sickness that we can just adopt unthinkingly. But there's another attitude that Christians often have. It's not to adopt this unthinkingly. It's to go the other way. It says this, since the world focuses on bodies, I'm just going to ignore mine. It doesn't really matter, right? It's my soul that has to be born again. It's my mind that has to believe the right doctrines. My body doesn't really matter. And what I'd like to suggest today is that is just as unhealthy and as unbiblical a view as the first one where we obsess over our bodies. Now, admit, it's biblically appropriate to emphasize spiritual health over physical health. The Bible does that. 1 Timothy 4.8 says this, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. The challenge is that we take that some value as really no value. We can just excuse it. As long as I believe the right doctrines, as long as I've invited, quote-unquote, Jesus into my heart, how I take care of my body, whether I take care of my body, what I feed my body, whether I exercise my body, doesn't really matter. God isn't really concerned about that. But the Bible presents an entirely different vision for us. It comes to Romans 12.1, which is really a, a key passage. According to Romans 12.1, we are to treat our bodies as instruments, not as ornaments. The world treats our bodies as ornaments. Take care of your body, exercise your body, starve your body, weight lift your body so that you can be this ornament. You can take off your shirt in the summertime if you're a guy. And, and this isn't Europe, right? And, 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 and then you, you're, you're focused on becoming an ornament that others can look at. The Bible says, no, it, it's not about becoming an ornament. But the fact is your body is an instrument. And what does that mean? Romans 12.1. Offer your bodies. Offer what? Your minds? Just your hearts? It's wider than that. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Catch this. Which is your spiritual worship. So God is saying our spiritual worship is to take care of our physical bodies, to offer those up to God. That worship isn't just singing songs, it's not kneeling in prayer, it's not lighting candles, it's not just meditating. Paul is saying that worship can involve what you eat for lunch in 45 minutes, what you do as far as exercise or whether you don't exercise at all, that God views that as a form of your worship. And there are any number of passages in the New Testament where Paul addresses why we need to look after our bodies. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 4. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, I suspect that these verses are familiar to everybody in here. But here's what's different about our generation than generations past. When we've looked at these in our generation, we almost always assume when the Bible talks about controlling your body, you're thinking about your genitals. We think it relates to sexual ethics. Now, many do, including the verse I'm about to read, does specifically address our sexuality, but not all of them. We've got these cultural blinders. When the Bible is saying control your body, we think it's control your sexual nature. We're the first generation in the church to think that way. When you look throughout the ages, the Middle Ages, they had these things they called the seven deadly sins. You've all heard of those, right? Seven deadly sins. I mean, they're, they're not in Scripture, but people would just present them as really the, the sins to avoid. And there are different lists. There's not just one definitive list. They change through the ages. But two sins were in just about every version of those lists. And those were gluttony and sloth. They were seen as two of the things that Christians really needed to avoid not to be tripped up. Let me ask you, how, when's the last time you've heard sermons on gluttony or sloth? When have we addressed this? We have focused on controlling ourselves sexually in relation to our bodies. We are afraid to deal with these other issues that previous generations of Christians weren't. I think the key verse on this really is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. When uh, Paul writes this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is such a radical statement that Paul is saying, this this sack of flesh that holds you together, it doesn't belong to you. It's not that your health decisions, what you feed your body, whether you exercise, it's not what you're willing to live with. God has entrusted you with one body. It's the only thing you get this entire life. And and, and how you care for it is, is really a testimony to the God who gave you this body. You don't own it. As a Christian, you can't say, this is mine. He says, no, it's not. You can't join yourself sexually to anyone you want to just because you want to. And he's also saying you shouldn't feed yourself just what you want to eat or exercise or not just because you want to do it or not because you're entrusted with this. It's not your own. I'm I'm terrible with handling paper. If you were to see my desk, you would lose all respect for me. I'm... I don't file things very well. I'm always losing files. I'm always losing papers. I'm always having to run off notes I've run off before because it's quicker to run them off than to try to discover them and find them in my mess. And so when I was working on a book, I used to write a lot of books with other Christians. There was this um, well-known politician in the United States. At one time, he was a candidate for president. And we were working on a book together. Very ethical man. Uh, We were in his Senate office And I needed to make some copies of this file he had, but he wouldn't allow me to do it because that's public, uh, it's it's government business. And even though it wasn't that many papers, he just said, no, I I just want you to take the original file and and bring it back. Now, some of these could not be replaced. Some of them were handwritten. There were some letters. There were some annotations. And as he's handing me this file, my knees are shaking. And I'm like, 
please, please don't. I, I, I just, I don't want to be in charge of this. He said, Gary, I was a bit younger than you. You're a responsible young man. I, I, I trust you. And I had the most miserable week of my life going through those notes because I thought, what if I lose them? Like, I've lost so many other things. I mean, what if he does get to become president and then they're trying to write his biography and they're saying, what happened to him at this time in his life? We don't know. Some idiot writer lost the file and it's never been... I mean, I just... And so I couldn't sleep that week. At every waking moment, I had to know, where is that file? Where is that file? Why was I so concerned? I've lost more files than I can count. Why didn't I lose that file? Because it didn't belong to me. And I didn't treat it like it belonged to me. I said, this is his. This matters. I've got to take care of it. Your life will change if you realize Paul's words, your body doesn't belong to you so many ethical issues then become a matter of stewardship it's not mine to treat or to smoke or to ingest or not to do whatever i want just because i want to do it paul is saying hey you you don't own it god not only created it if you're in christ he recreated you he redeemed you and he claims you for his service and this is so important because a lot of us, when we decide we want to get fit, we want to do it for the same reasons the world wants to get fit. We're selfish. We're vain. We want people to think we look better or we want to feel better. Okay, that's selfishness and vanity. So what we're doing is we're fighting sin with sin. I'll use selfishness and vanity to fight gluttony and sloth. And we're not any better off spiritually. But if we have this notion, you know what? I'm to be an instrument, not an ornament. I'm to take care of this body because it doesn't belong to me and because God has given me a mission. And if you're in Christ, God has given you a mission. He has a purpose for you. He wants to use you. The only way He can use you is if you have a body that's working. And and so you're taking care of that instrument that God has given you so that you can serve Him and be an instrument before Him. That's what it means to view our bodies as instruments. Now, I want to give a caution here. This is something we apply to ourselves. Where I think a lot of people have been afraid to address it is because it sounds judgmental. And we don't know other struggles. We don't know other situations. Uh, the, the Thomas genes that I come from are, are pretty chubby genes. That's just sort of my, my family of origin. Um, and my parents now are in their retirement years. My dad is in his 80s. My mom is in her late 70s. And they're in that stage in life where they do everything together. Um, they're just almost never apart. And so when they do their physicals with the doctor, they do those together. And last year they went in together and my mom had her first physical. So she went in and there was an hour and a half gap before my dad could go in. So they did what Thomas's do. They went to the food court at the local mall. They sat down. My mom ordered a cup of coffee and a donut. Because that's what we Thomases have done from time immemorial. And, and she brings a donut right up to her mouth. And at that point, my dad, who had been married to her for over 50 years, momentarily lost his mind and said, uh, so Geneva, how much did you weigh today? And she's like, why are you asking me that, Jerry? He goes, well, I'm just concerned about I'm, I'm your husband. You know, that's about blood pressure. And I, I just... She goes, well, why would you ask me when I'm just about to eat a donut? I was looking forward to this donut. How can I enjoy this donut now when you ask me that? I paid for this donut. I don't know what relevance that has to it. It seemed to matter to my mom when she was recounting it. I mean, between you and me, she hasn't had a job for over 30 years. So it's old currency if she paid for it. But 
and so my dad didn't get where he is in life by just accepting the first no for an answer. So when they went back, he had the same nurse as my mom had had. And she went in and she weighed him and she's writing down the chart. And he said, so how much did Geneva weigh? And she goes, well, Jerry, did Geneva tell you? No, that's why I have to ask you. She, she wouldn't tell me. She said, well, I can't tell you if Geneva didn't tell you. Now, I would normally applaud this nurse's sense of doctor-patient confidentiality, except for the fact when she came out, she told my mom that my dad had asked her, which, of course, set off a discussion you might imagine. So when I get into town, my mom is, Gary, you're the marriage guy. Should a husband ask his wife how much she weighed right when she's got a donut in front of her mouth? I was not going to get involved into that. But, but here's the thing. We can't use this as a sledgehammer against someone else because the reality, body shape is not a fair fight. I studied this when I was writing Everybody Matters. I don't believe we're all designed to be thin. Thin is a particular ideal that tends to, frankly, be there out of white, affluent culture. Not every race has the same body designs. In fact, Asians tend to be thinnest of all people um, it, it's not the same. And, and there could be any number of reasons why somebody is struggling. I know a man who had been an athlete his entire life in perfect shape, got into a medical issue, doctors prescribed prednisone, immediately puffs out. It had nothing to do with gluttony. It had nothing to do with sloth. It was body chemistry. He couldn't help it. I, I know a woman who was, was very beautiful growing up as a young woman. She was molested by an older uh, relative. She, after that, she started dating professional football players in the United States. She was raped um, on, on one of those dates. And then at that point, she started just gorging herself. What she was thinking is, I'm, I'm going to make myself so nobody ever wants to rape me again. And she has been fighting that her entire life, heroically. She's gone to the camps. She's gone through the diet. She's gone, almost died from an operation. She has been as disciplined as a woman could be, but those psychological scars are real, and it would be cruel and heartless and ignorant to say, just stop it. And so we have to be careful. There's complex psychological, spiritual, physical reasons. I know another young woman... She's just got thyroid issues and people laugh about it, but I have never seen someone eat so heroically and yet she'll probably struggle with her weight her entire life. It's not about being thin. It's not about judging people's obedience by the shape of their body. It's are you taking care of your body? Are you treating your body as an instrument that doesn't belong to you? And here's what I like about the fact that I come from a family with chubby jeans. Though it's more of a struggle for me, though if I feel like if I mess up one meal, I gain one pound immediately like that, it forces me to be more disciplined. I think if I could eat anything I wanted and not exercise at all, I think more often than not I would live that life of indulgence. Because nobody would know I would never be caught. And so it forces me to deal with those issues. And when I deal with those issues, it helps spiritually. The ancients would say, and I think this is true, they called gluttony and sloth gateway sins. Gateway sins. They said they're they're sort of the entryway. And if you give in to a life of indulgence and ease, what they're saying is you're going to be toast when it comes up to gossip. You're not going to be able to control your tongue. You're going to be toast when it comes up to issues like lust. You're just going to give yourself in. So I said, look, fight that first battle rather than always trying to fight the one that's behind the second lines. 
But here's, here's the vision I want to give to you. i got a little bit of time here. Um, it, it's not about, as I said, creating an ornament. It's about being an instrument. But here's the vision I'd like to leave, particularly with, with you um, younger people. The senior pastor at the church where I'm writer in residence at, I don't know if you're familiar with the church. I'm, I'm not boasting when I say this because I had nothing to do with building it. I'm just describing it. It's, it's absurdly large. I think we have over 60,000 members. Um, on any given weekend, about 25,000 are going to come. If it's a holiday weekend, we're going to hit about 40,000. That's about what we do. It's over five campuses. He's in his 70s. He'll be 77 this year. And yet when I watched him at a staff retreat about a year ago, 12-hour days, inspiring his staff, challenging his staff, instructing his staff, not with notes as I would use. You know, I would want to have my iPad here like I did in the class before. Okay, we're going to say this point and that point and this point and that point. This is off the top of his head. Decades of ministry, having studied scriptures, having led a church, he's just sharing out of his heart because issues would come up spontaneously and, and he would address them. And I remember just watching Dr. Young saying, what a gift to the church. That Dr. Young made choices in his 30s, 40s, and 50s. So that when he's in his 70s with all that wisdom and a lifetime of studying scripture and the experience that you can't buy in college or seminary, he's able to bless this church without being completely consumed by medical issues. Now, many medical issues are genetic. You can eat perfectly. You can exercise well. And they're still under the providence of God. You're going to face them. But a lot of medical issues we eat ourselves into and we sit ourselves into. And what I want to challenge you, particularly younger people, I'd say particularly the younger women, I think it is so evil in our culture when we tell women they're most prized and most beautiful when they're in about a half a decade stretch of their 20s. And then living in Texas culture now, how women in their 40s, 50s, and 60s will spend tens of thousands of dollars trying to look like they used to look. That's their goal. And, and, and starving themselves in the gym and spending hours trying to work out to fit into the genes they fit into in their 20s. That is so backwards that the most valuable part of your life to society is when you're in a small stage of your life and then you lose it. But here's how the Bible looks at that so differently. If your body is an instrument, the Bible would say... What God values is character and faith and wisdom. Okay, real character, deep faith in the midst of crises, wisdom where you really understand and internalize truth takes decades to develop. You don't become a Christian and instantly have character. You don't become a believer and instantly have wisdom. That takes time. And so what the Bible would say to you women is, look, pursue God, love God, follow God, so that when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, you're becoming more beautiful in the sight of heaven. That character is shining through. That wisdom is shining through. And you really reach your fullness of what it means to be a human being. But if you don't make those choices in your 20s and 30s and 40s, so many people then their later years become consumed with health issues that they chose by the thousands of little decisions they made earlier in their life. Trust me, it is so much easier to maintain health than to recapture health. And anybody here over 40 will give me a hearty amen at that. 
And, and, and the thing I want to give you guys a vision for is, is, is like that, just what I, what I did with the women. Think of Dr. Young. Try to project yourself several decades from now. You're studying hard now to gain that wisdom. What if you can gain that wisdom for another 10, 15, or 20 years because you're taking care of the instrument that you spread that wisdom with? Wouldn't that be worth making the decisions now? I'm not even talking about the instantaneous sense of energy and vitality. It's, it's real. Being in shape or not in shape affects your capacity for ministry. It affects your joy in life. It affects your relationships. It has a huge impact on the present. But I also want you to think about the future. God has given me one body. I can't serve people without a body. So am I taking care of the body that can do that? I, I, I think it's, it's a great selfless vision that the Bible presents. And I know it's a difficult message. What gives me the courage to address it is Paul in Acts 20.20 when he said this, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. This is near the end of Paul's ministry. And he said, look, I've said some hard words to you. And I know it's hard because I know some of you, you already feel like you're beat up on this issue. And here comes this balding guy from the United States making you feel worse about it. That's, That's not what I want to do. But Paul says, if there's something that might be helpful to you, I'm not going to hesitate to preach it. This is scripture. I believe taking care of your bodies now can have a huge impact in the near term and an even bigger impact in the end of your life. So that when you have that wisdom, when you have that experience, God can keep using you to bless your family, to bless your friends and to reach the world. So I implore you, take care of your instrument. Your body is not your own. It was bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. Father, you would never leave truth on the table without the promise of your Holy Spirit's empowerment. It's not that we become convicted and we try harder. It's that in this glorious unity, your spirit would speak his truth and then fill us with the will, the desire, and the power to obey. And so that's what I ask would happen now. A lot of us have failed in this issue. We've tried harder. Father, I learned that, I pray that we could learn to depend upon you. We could put ourselves humbly before you. Say, Lord, this is, this is what I want. I believe this is true. I haven't treated my body as yours. I've treated it as mine. Lord, we need your grace. Let us be kind to each other, not judgmental, not presume things we don't know. But Lord, let us also be faithful to you and kind to ourselves and treating our bodies as instruments instead of ornaments. In Jesus' name, amen.